0: Well, hello, all you GCA Internet listeners. As I'm speaking, it is Wednesday night, August 19, 2020. I've just gotten home from GCA, where I preached this particular message, only to find out afterwards that the recording did not record. I would like to blame some sort of technical foul-up. But the truth is, it was user error. It's just one button. I just have to push this one button. But after I had checked the levels and saw that everything was working correctly, I walked away, put on my microphone, and we had a good evening. And then we got to the end of the evening, and I discovered that there was no recording. So, I'm home now. I'm in my office. And I'm going to go through the same message again, so that there are no gaps on the GCA website as we're working our way through Isaiah. On top of that, I think this is a really vital section of the book of Isaiah, so I want everybody to have an opportunity to understand what's happening in this section of the book. Now, granted, I really like live recordings. I like when I can look at people in the eye and get their feedback and get the positive energy that I receive from people when I'm talking. So this particular message sitting here in my office is going to cover the same basic information but it's probably not going to have the same amount of energy and extemporaneous comments that occasionally just fall out of my face. But you will get the essentials. You will get the meat and potatoes of this message. So let's begin. Last week, we were dealing with Isaiah 6, and we got as far as Isaiah's commission. And that's what we're really going to concentrate on tonight for the whole night. You know, once I discovered that the recording did not record, Micah came up to me and said, You've just spoken so much and so eloquently about God's sovereignty. I guess you can't really complain about the fact that it didn't record. God sovereignly didn't want it to record. And he makes a good point. You cannot read Isaiah 6 and the way that Isaiah 6 comes to its fruition in the New Testament without understanding God's absolute sovereignty. The vision that Isaiah sees in chapter 6, we're told is during the year that King Uzziah died. So we know that that's 740 B.C. That's when he sees this vision, and that's when he gets this commission. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and see this commission coming to its fruition and see how both Jesus and Paul applied it to the Jewish unbelief during their lives and ministries. This is how both Paul and Jesus explained that the Jews did not understand their scriptures correctly, that they did not recognize Messiah when he was in their midst. It's as a result of the commission that was given to Isaiah 700 years in advance. And there's just no way to comprehend that. There's no way to understand that if you don't understand the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over human beings and over human history, and in fact in charge of every person who ever lives during his history. Equally true is the fact that the more serious you become about Isaiah's commission, the more impossible you'll see it is for human beings to have libertarian free will. Because over the course of 700 years, there were a whole lot of people who lived and died in Judah and Jerusalem who, had they been able to do whatever they wanted according to their own decision and will, could have messed up this plan of God that was put into place for 700 years. And yet, when Jesus was on the planet, he said that this was the fulfillment the words of isaiah from this very commission so big picture isaiah in 740 bc says that god is going to harden the hearts close the ears close the eyes of judah so that they don't recognize their messiah so that when he comes to the planet he comes to his own and his own do not receive him so that his own will actually crucify him so that he can die to pay the sin debt price that is going to bring about everything else that God has promised both to Judah and Jerusalem and to the church. In other words, in order to guarantee the success of the Messiah, God, 700 years in advance, predicted that there was going to be This closed-mindedness, this closed hard-heartedness, this inability to hear, this inability to see and understand spiritual things, that was going to exist specifically so that when Jesus got to the planet, the Jews would kill him. And he said so. And that is astoundingly sovereign. So, Isaiah 6, starting at verse 1. In the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, says the NASB. The King James is high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, the burning ones, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. That's how far we got last week. I made reference to the next portion, the next verse, which reads, And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. I can't even begin to tell you the number of bad sermons I have heard based on that particular passage. Pulpeteers have a tendency to tell people, God is waiting on you to make the decision that you are going to devote yourself and devote your life to him, to his cause, to his word. And so you have to respond to him. When he says, who shall I send? You have to say, here am I, send me, Lord. Like it's a very positive thing. I've even heard preachers say that they are in the ministry today because they willingly responded to the call of God. And when God said, who shall I send to preach for me, to speak my word for me, I said, here am I, send me. And that all sounds very positive and uplifting. The problem is that when Isaiah said that, God then gave him a commission that was very, very negative. God did not say to Isaiah, okay, go to these people and tell them that I have a wonderful plan for their life. If they'll just choose me, if they'll just make me Lord and Savior, then they can have a, a bigger house and a bigger car or a, a better camel, as the case may be. No, it was not a positive message that God was sending Isaiah to tell Judah and Jerusalem. Instead, it was a message of absolute sovereignty. And the sovereign purpose of God was to punish these people for their rebellion against him, for following after their foreign gods, for intermarrying, for not following his law. And his punishment was going to take the form of him closing their eyes and closing their ears so that they would not hear and understand. And as a consequence, 700 years later, When Jesus actually does walk on the planet, they're not going to recognize him because of their hard hearts and their closed eyes and their closed ears. And they are going to kill him. And that is going to accomplish exactly what God intended to accomplish and wrote about all through the scriptures. It's why Luke in the book of Acts would write that the Jews and the Gentiles, that Herod and Pilate, were gathered together there in Jerusalem, to do whatsoever your hand determined to be done. What did they all gather together to do? They all gathered together to kill Jesus. And yet that was exactly what God had ordained to be done, and as part of the process of bringing that about, he closed the minds, closed the hearts, closed the eyes, closed the ears of the Jews in Jerusalem so that they would do that very thing. Now, some people like to think of God as being universally benevolent. God is just out there hoping that anybody will choose him and follow him. God is seeker-sensitive, in too many people's estimation. And so it's hard for them to imagine a God who would say, for the next 700 years plus, you people are going to be blinded and deafened to spiritual realities. I'm going to harden your heart so that you do not understand, so that I can accomplish my greater purpose, despite how negative that might seem to you. Only if you understand an absolutely sovereign God who does whatever he wants and who, in fact, has the power and the ability to do whatever he chooses to do, Only if you step back and take a big overview of world history can you understand and see that God is working out his divine plan from the Garden in Eden all the way to New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation. It is all working according to the plan that God has determined, the blueprint that he has laid out from the very beginning. Known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. And our frustrations come when we don't align ourselves with what God has already declared he's doing. And this is just one of those instances where we get to see God declare it, and then see Jesus come to the planet and affirm it, and then see Paul write about it after the fact. In fact, Paul uses it as his inspiration to go to the Gentiles. So the very fact that you, as a Gentile, understand anything about God or his word today is a direct result of the commission that God gave to Isaiah. That's the big plan. All right, let's read it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, Interesting that God speaks of himself as a plurality at that moment. I don't think he's speaking in the royal we. Instead, I believe that he is referring to his Trinitarian nature, one God, three persons, the same way that in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we read about Elohim, which is a plural word, and God makes man after our image. The same thing is happening here. God is speaking, but when he says, who shall we send? He says, who shall we send for us? Because God is aware of the makeup of the Godhead. Therefore, he could speak of himself in a Trinitarian plural manner. Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go Tell this people. Okay, Isaiah is a prophet to Judah and Jerusalem. I hope that we've established that by now. So when God says, go tell this people, he's clearly talking about Judah and Jerusalem. And go tell them this. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now let's talk about that last phrase first. God is saying that since Jerusalem and Judah are in a state where they are opposing him, not following after his law. Since they are not paying attention to his word and they are in opposition to him, he invites them repeatedly, return to me, turn back to me, and I'll forgive you. But in this instance, for this purpose, God says, They're going to see, they're going to look, but they're not going to comprehend. They're not going to perceive. They're not going to understand. Their ears are going to be dull and their eyes aren't going to be able to see. And they're not going to be able to hear with their ears or understand with their hearts or return, return to me and be healed. Now let's talk about what kind of healing we're discussing here. You may recall that at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, as God was laying out his case against the people of Judah, he described them as being sick. Their spiritual condition was sick. He wasn't talking about them individually having individual illnesses that he's promising to heal. Instead, what he's saying is that nationally, their spiritual condition is nothing but sickness. Here's what it says. Alas, Sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound or healthy or whole in it, in the whole nation. There's only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. So, God describes the spiritual state of Jerusalem with language of disease and sickness from head to foot. And that's the context in which God says, if they were to understand, if they could see, if they could comprehend, then they would return to me and they'd be healed. He would heal them nationally. He would restore their spiritual relationship with him. It's the exact same language, as I've already said, when we're reading again in Isaiah, that with his stripes we are healed, that prophecy is given particularly to Israel and Jerusalem and Judah, that with the stripes of Christ, we are healed. Our spiritual condition is healed. It's not a promise of physical healing, which way too many... Popular faith healers love to take that passage, that verse, out of context and say, if you just trust Jesus, if you come to Jesus, then by his stripes on the cross, you've got physical healing. And that is not at all, contextually, what Isaiah is promising. God is promising that when Israel returns, he will heal them nationally from their spiritual blindness and deadness and deafness and hard-heartedness. Okay, so then Isaiah asks a very natural question, because don't forget that we're only six chapters into the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah has already predicted this glorious future for Israel. He knows that God is going to be faithful to Israel, and this glorious future is coming. And yet here is God saying that Isaiah is going to go speak to the people and it is going to result in their not understanding, in their not comprehending, and that he's going to be part of that process where they keep on listening and don't perceive, where they keep on looking but they don't understand. So he's going to go and tell the people exactly that. And yet Isaiah knows that there's his future coming because God is faithful. So he naturally asks in verse 11, Lord, how long? How long is this going to be for? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like the terebinth or the oak, whose stump remains while it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Okay, so right at the end of all this bad news, God also speaks of remnant, that remnant theology that pervades God's dealings with Israel just like god told elijah that he had kept to himself 7000 men who had not bowed the knee to baal god said i did that i kept them to myself he always keeps a remnant to himself so that even paul writing in the book of romans could say has god forsaken has god abandoned the people that he foreknew and he says god forbid and his example of it is me i'm i'm a remnant he says I am a Jew. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. And yet, he says, and here I am, a believer in Jesus. And so, Paul is very big on remnant theology, and he gets that from his understanding of God constantly saying that he's going to keep a remnant. And that remnant is going to spring up again in that glorious future. In this particular passage, Israel is compared to a tree that is burned away completely, but there's still a stump. And the stump of an oak tree or a terebinth is still alive, and it will still sprout, and it will bring up new branches and new vegetation. And so God specifically says, the holy seed, that holy remnant, that is that stump. So, he's answered Isaiah's question, how long? And he says, well, there's going to be a time of punishment where the cities are devastated, they're without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land's utterly desolate. Now, he might be referring at that moment to the Babylonian captivity, which is looming right on the horizon. But then what you're going to see is when Jesus walks on the planet 700 years later, He makes reference to Isaiah's commission in order to explain the unbelieving nature of the Jews of his day, and if this particular prophecy were just talking about the Babylonian captivity, then once Nehemiah started leading people back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, that time would have been over. And they would have had open eyes, and they would have had open ears, and they would have had hearts of flesh, and they would have perceived who Jesus was when he walked on the planet. So Jesus says that this is still true of them during the time that he's on the planet. And it has to still be true of them so that he ends up on a cross. And so this description of cities that are devastated and the particular phrase, and it will again be subject to burning, may be a reference to 70 A.D. After all, the first burning of Jerusalem would have happened under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and then Jesus comes to the planet, and then the Romans come in and essentially do the same thing and drive people out of their homeland So what does that tell us? It tells us that even those bad, horrific things that happened are under the hands of a sovereign God who is doing exactly what he wants to do. Not only in punishing those people, but in preparing them for his own son coming to the planet and needing to fulfill everything that is written about him in the scripture which includes his death burial resurrection ascension that is also all prophesied and it all has to come true and so there has to be a people group who even though he would come to his own his own would receive him not and they would dislike him they would hate him they would doubt him to such a degree that they would want to eliminate him. That is the master plan of God. So again, 700 years in advance, God predicts through Isaiah that this is exactly what he's going to do to these people. And people for the next 700 years are going to live during this time period of spiritual blindness and darkness waiting for the coming of the Messiah. 400 of those 700 years, they don't even have a prophet. And so God is purposely keeping them in the dark in order to accomplish his own sovereign plan. And that really helps us to understand the world, not just in history, but even in our own day. Why are things falling out the way they're falling out right now? Well, because God has a plan. This is the way it's supposed to work. Like I've said, cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse. Well, now it's beginning to get worse. In several places of the world, chaos seems to be ensuing. But that doesn't mean that God has fallen off the throne. In fact, if we know God based on what he has revealed of himself in his word, we understand and recognize that that's exactly how God has always worked. That's how God has always been in order to accomplish his larger, grander purpose. So, even in the midst of this punishment against Judah and Jerusalem, verse 13 tells us that there's going to be a tenth portion, a remnant. And it will again be subject to burning, the city will, but like the terebinth or the oak, whose stump remains after it's felled, the holy seed, is its stump, and so God is keeping a remnant who will, in fact, believe the Messiah when he arrives. Okay, so that's all background to what we're about to read out of the New Testament. So let's start by taking a look at Matthew 13, verse 10. In this passage, Jesus is going to compare the larger population of Judah and Jerusalem in his day, he's going to explain their unbelief, and his explanation is going to include quoting from Isaiah's commission. But then he's going to turn to his followers, to his apostles, and he's going to speak to them as the remnant. So very, very parallel what we've already learned from Isaiah. Jesus is explaining why he talks in parables. Basically, he's cloaking the truth from the people who have no ability to understand the truth. The ironic part is that he's actually telling them the truth. He's looking them in the eye, and he's telling them the actual eternal truth. But he's telling it to them in such a way that they're blind eyes, that their hard hearts, that their closed ears are not going to be able to comprehend it. But it's still true. The disciples came to him. This is Matthew thirteen ten. The disciples came to him and they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, It has not been granted. Okay, so how do you come to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? How do you come to understand the word of God? How do you begin to comprehend anything about God and his accomplishments through history and promises for the future? How do you understand any of that? Well, according to Jesus, who's a pretty good authority on the subject, it is granted to you. It is given to you. To those who it's not granted to, Jesus doesn't speak plainly and clearly to them so that they will remain in their lack of understanding. But to you, he says, it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has... Now, I can only assume that what he's talking about here is that comprehension of the kingdom of heaven. For whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance i think what jesus is describing there is if god has begun the process of enlightening you and teaching you he's going to do that throughout your life and you're going to understand more and more and it's going to build here a little there a little piece on piece you're going to understand more and more about god And whatever you've already been given, you're going to be given more until you end up with an abundance, such an abundance, in fact, that you're someday actually going to stand in the kingdom of heaven and see the glories of God that you've been reading about and hearing about your whole life. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So, to those people who God has not granted understanding, even if they have a little bit of comprehension, it's going to be taken away from them. The same way that Jesus, in the parable of the sowers, spoke about four different kinds of soil. The seed that was scattered on the soil was perfectly good seed. The seed was the word, but there were certain kinds of hardened, packed-down soil where plants would grow up quickly, they would look like they were going to have some comprehension, bear some fruit, but because they had no depth of roots because of the rocks and the packed-down soil, they'd spring up quickly and then shrivel up in the sun, or the devil would come and take away what little they had. So this is very consistent teaching of Jesus that if God has not granted you the understanding of the truth, even what little bit you might glean— is ultimately going to be taken away from you. Anyway, verse 13 says, Therefore, because of that truth, therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Now, if Jesus had just left them with that description and we read it, we would say, wow, that kind of has echoes of Isaiah's commission to it. But just so that we and they don't miss the point, Jesus continues and says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. So Jesus himself tells us that the lack of understanding on the part of the Jews of his day is a direct result of the fact that Isaiah prophesied 700 years in advance that their eyes were going to be blinded, their ears were not going to be able to hear it, that they just weren't going to understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. This was not just a lucky guess. This was not just something that might happen or might not. This is the actual fulfillment, according to Jesus, of the words that were spoken by God to Isaiah. And then he quotes it. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. So Jesus left no ambiguity on the topic. This is the fulfillment of the commission that was given to Isaiah, and the reason these people don't understand is because God himself told Isaiah, this is what I'm going to do among these people, go and announce it to these people, and then it is satisfied, it is fulfilled in Jesus' day, which is why they don't understand him. Because if they did, if they ever did understand him, if they perceived him— as Messiah if they perceived him as the king that they were longing for and looking for they would never have killed him but they had to kill him that was also prophesied about him and so there had to be a people guaranteed who would be so spiritually blinded they would kill their Messiah and Jesus knew that and so for that reason he would speak to them in parables so there was no possibility that they would really understand or comprehend. And then he would not heal them as a nation. And then in verse 16, Jesus starts speaking to his disciples. And he forms a complete contrast between the majority of people in Jerusalem and those that are his Those who, he said, it's been given to you to understand these things. It's been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Verse 16 says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. That's in contrast to the ones who don't see and don't hear. For truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In other words, Jesus says, there were prophets who prophesied about me. There were wise men who read those prophecies, and they all longed to see me. They all wanted to hear me speak. And they didn't hear it, and they didn't see it, and yet here I am. You can look at me, you can touch me, you can talk with me, you can eat with me, And there have been men for ages and ages who have desired to do and to see the very things that you are now doing and seeing. That's how truly blessed you are. So the contrast between the stump, the holy seed, the remnant, and the vast majority of the people living in Jerusalem, that contrast is absolutely huge. And yet it is exactly what Isaiah predicted 700 years in advance. Tonight, with the congregation, I really played up that 700 years. So that later in the sermon, I could start saying, for how many years? And it was just sort of tattooed to their brains by then. They would say, 700 years. Because it's pretty astounding. I mean, how long has America been around? And yet, look at what we've been through. 700 years, a tremendous amount of things happened in Jerusalem. And yet, they remained in that state so that when Jesus got to the planet, he could say, this is the fulfillment of that thing that Isaiah was talking about. Now, Mark and Luke also mention that in much briefer statements, but they both mention that moment because it's just that important. All three synoptic Gospels bring up that Jesus spoke in parables in order to fulfill Isaiah's commission. Mark 4.10 says, and as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. That's just a shortened version of what Matthew told us. Luke 8, 9 is a similar summation. It says, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable— This, by the way, was when Jesus was telling them the parable of the sower, when he was explaining that the word is the seed and it goes out to all kinds of different soil. And depending on the kind of soil that the seed falls on, that's whether or not there's actual fruit, there's actual produce that grows. And three quarters of that soil does not end up producing fruit. So his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant, and he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they might see, and hearing they may not understand. So those are the three synoptics. They all quote that. But then John also writes about it. Apparently, in a completely other event, Jesus also brought up Isaiah's commission. And he implemented it in order to explain why it was that the Jews did not believe. These things, this is John 12, starting at verse 36, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away, and he hid himself from them. But though he had performed Many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. You may recall that Paul said that where the Greeks seek wisdom, the Jews seek a sign. That's why they were always goading Jesus by saying, What sign do you show us so that we can know by what authority you do these things? They were always asking for a sign. And, of course, Jesus replied, a wicked, adulterous generation requires a sign to believe. By the way, may I point out just parenthetically that the word generation right there doesn't mean this particular 40-year span during which you particular people are alive. It is the word genea. It's talking about the people of a common heritage, the people of a common people group genea, G-E-N-E-A in English, moved unchanged in its spelling to the word genealogy. It's talking about people who have a common heritage, a common seed. And so he says that it is a wicked, adulterous people group who require a sign to believe, because he's talking to the Jews, who Paul said they require a sign to believe. And then he told them there's only going to be one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, the Son of Man will be three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. Okay, so that was the one sign that he was willing to give them as proof positive of who he was. The resurrection was the proof positive. Nevertheless, He had performed all these great signs in front of them. They had seen the signs. They had seen the miracles. They had seen blind men seeing and lame men walking. They had seen all of these great miracles, and they still weren't believing in him. By the way, what that shows me is signs and miracles do not create faith and belief. You know, the current crop of faith healers who used to crisscross the country who, by the way, have become amazingly quiet since COVID-19. But they used to try to get people to come up to the front and make a profession of Christ based on signs, based on the supposed miracles that they had seen that evening. See, these people got healed, therefore it's Jesus who healed them. You need to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. Come forward, make a profession, come to the altar. All of that And so they were claiming that faith and belief could result from signs. And here you have Jesus himself telling you that they weren't believing even though they had seen the signs. And you would think that if all it took was good enough signs, adequate inducement, that those people having seen Him with their own eyes and having heard them with their own ears, having seen these miraculous signs, they would have turned immediately to Him and had faith. But they didn't. So why? Why? Even though they had that much evidence, why didn't they believe? Well, verse 38 says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has the strength, the might of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed what we're reporting? Who has believed the story? Who has believed the prophecies? Who has believed the very word of God that I am proclaiming, says Isaiah, and to whom have you revealed it? But John doesn't stop there. He says, For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory. He saw the glory of God. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw God high and lifted up. He saw the glory of God, and he spoke of God. And what did he speak? He spoke that God was going to close their eyes, stop up their ears, and harden their hearts. Verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, did believe in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Okay, so why is it that so many of the Jewish leaders did not believe? Jesus' answer is so that Isaiah's commission is fulfilled. Satisfied. This has to happen. This is the very word of God that this would occur to this people group, and he predicted it how many hundreds of years ago? 700 years in advance. And so they were on the planet at Jesus' time so that they could reject him, so that he would die on the cross, so that he would raise to newness of life, so that he would rise to the right hand of the throne of God where he is our advocate. And all of that had to happen. That is what was predicted in God's Word, and therefore God was perfectly willing to use 700 years of Jewish people in their blinded state in order to accomplish the divine plan that He determined from the beginning. Known unto God are all His ways from the beginning, and can He do whatever He wants with His creation? Yes, He absolutely can, and if His goal is to glorify His Son, can He harden and blind people and leave them in that state for seven hundred years. Well, the Bible says he did. And by the way, if that's the God you believe in, if that's the God who has made you promises, if that's the God that you are trusting, and he has that kind of ability, he has that kind of power, he has that kind of sovereignty, then yes, absolutely. Cast yourself on him. Trust him. Place all your hope in him utterly and completely. Because he has proven, he has demonstrated time and time again that he has absolute authority and control over human life and human history. And if he makes a promise, he has the ability to make it come true. Even a promise like, 700 years, you folks are going to be blinded. That comes true. Jesus walks on the planet and says, this is the fulfillment of that very thing that Isaiah was predicting. And if he has promised you eternal life and forgiveness of sin, that is absolutely going to happen because God has already demonstrated in time and history his ability to sovereignly control everything for his own glory and the glory of his Son. It's remarkable. It's absolutely wonderful, and it's just way, way sovereign. Okay, one more passage. This is from Acts 28. This is Paul talking, and Paul is going to explain why it is that he went to the Gentiles And the reason is because the Jews were not understanding him even as he was demonstrating straight from the Scripture that Jesus was their Messiah. Here's what it says. Acts 28, starting at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. That, by the way, is really interesting language because here's Paul, a Jew, speaking to an audience of Jews after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and he's still talking about the kingdom of God. And the only kingdom that they would know is the kingdom that's been promised in the Old Testament repeatedly, which is the glorious future for Israel. And here is Paul, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, still talking to the Jews, about the kingdom of God. I just find that fascinating. I would love to know what he said to them. But he's still confirming the kingdom of God. So he was testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. The law and the prophets. That's sort of a nickname for the whole of the Old Testament. Now it's possible that Luke was being this specific because Paul was dealing with the books of Moses and then showing how those related to Christ and then going to the prophets and showing how they predicted Christ. That's possible, but also there are prophecies about Christ, like in the Psalms, in the poetry books. So the whole of the Old Testament prophesies about Jesus And he was trying to demonstrate that. He was trying to show them who Christ was from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. By the way, let me add one more thing. Notice that he was not trying to persuade them based on his own erudite nature and his ability to be really, really persuasive. What did he use in order to demonstrate who Christ was? The Word of God. He went back to the Word of God. He went to their own scriptures to show them in their scriptures everything about Christ. And that should have been adequate. They should have understood it. They should have comprehended it. And yet they didn't. And yet they resisted it. He was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Every once in a while, somebody tries to tell me that my sermons are long. That's just the very Pauline nature that I'm carrying about. From morning to evening, he was there trying to persuade them about Christ. And some were being persuaded by the things that were spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another— they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. I, I like that particular phrase in the NASB. The word parting is added by the translators, but I like how colorful that picture is. The idea that Paul is leaving and he sees that they don't comprehend what he's telling them even though he is showing it to them out of their own scripture. It's right here in the word. It's the very word of God. It is the God-breathed declaration of God that this Jesus had to do the things that he did, that he had to die, that he had to rise again, that he had to rise and sit at the right hand of God. And that is precisely what he has done. And I'm arguing from the scripture, and so you can't deny it. And yet they would argue I like to think that Paul turned around, put his finger up in their face, and gave them one parting shot. And his parting words were to quote directly from Isaiah's commission. The Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. By the way, notice Paul's estimation of the scriptures. It wasn't just something that some guys wrote down. It wasn't a combination of history and lucky guesses. It was the very God-breathed Word, and the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, and this is what he said, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Paul sees in Isaiah's commission the exact reason that certain of the Jews didn't understand, and look what he did. He writes that the same word brings life to some and death to others. To some, it has the scent of life to life. To some, it has the scent of death to death. That very same word of God, causing Paul to say, who is sufficient to be handling these things? The word of God that brings life and brings death. Out of the scripture, he preached the Prince of Life. He demonstrated that Jesus was the Messiah. He demonstrated that Jesus had been prophesied and accomplished everything that the prophets said about him, including the fact, the stumbling block for the Jews, even the cross. The cross itself was completely in keeping with God's plan for Jesus as demonstrated by the fact that the prophets talked about it and Paul described it to them. That is life to life. And some did believe But that very same word hardened people and made it difficult for them to comprehend or understand. And so what did Paul do? He turned around and used the scripture again. He used the scripture to say, you believe, and this is what you should believe. And he used the scripture to say, you don't believe, and this is why you don't believe. It's all included in the scripture. If somebody to this very day has any comprehension of the things of God, it's because they learned it out of the Scripture. But if there are people who don't believe, the Scripture also talks about them. In other words, even their unbelief confirms that this is the very Word of God because God himself has already said that they don't believe and why they won't believe. The same word brings life to some and brings death to others. So after having quoted Isaiah's commission to the Jews, he said, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having, of course, a great dispute among themselves naturally. So, really, essentially, Paul was arguing that the Jews of his day weren't any different than the Jews of Isaiah's time. God had spoken through Isaiah that he was going to harden their hearts and close their eyes and close their ears and not give them the ability to understand or else they would return to him and he would have to heal them. And so, in order to not have that happen, he kept them in the dark so that they would not comprehend these spiritual things and the jews of his day were the same as the jews of isaiah's time because god is outside of time and he is able to keep people locked into a condition for as long as he chooses to keep them in that condition god had sovereignly withheld their understanding so that they would reject the messiah And that was prophesied, and it was determined that they would do exactly that. And so no surprise that when Jesus came onto the planet, they did exactly that. And it was prophesied of them 700 years in advance. That is an astoundingly sovereign God. You know, if Jesus were anything like the Arminian Jesus, the Jesus that... Arminians preach. Jesus would have been looking for people to follow him. He would have been seeker-sensitive. He wouldn't have run off the 5,000 after feeding them. He would have continued doing whatever it took to keep them around him. But instead, Jesus was motivated by the sovereignty and the word of God. And so he understood, as Paul understood, that there were going to be people who, despite everything, despite miracles, despite signs, despite seeing it in their own scripture, they just would not come to belief because they could not come to belief. And all of that is a result of the commission that God gave to Isaiah back in Isaiah 6. 700 years in advance, in a really, really, really Sovereign demonstration of God's control of human history. And I say again, you can trust a God like that. You should have faith, confidence, and hope in a God like that. Well, okay. I think I managed to get most of the highlights of tonight's message into this recording. I'm very tired of talking at this moment, but I appreciate you listening and I hope that your faith is built up, your faith and confidence again in the Word of God. This is all based in the Word of God, and the Word of God continues to prove itself over and over again to be the very demonstrative Word of God. And this is just another one of those many, many examples. So. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 7, where, by the way, God is going to say, a virgin's going to conceive and bring forth a son. And so Christ himself is introduced in chapter 7, right behind chapter 6, and God saying that he's going to blind the minds, the eyes, the ears, the hearts of the Jews. Right behind that, he's going to introduce them to the Messiah, who is the solution to their spiritual incapability. It's a marvelous, wonderful story. The grace of God, the gospel of Christ, is just absolutely astounding. All right, talk to you next time. Bye.